Our Father and our God, we continue to give you thanks for your goodness and your mercy to us, Lord. We thank you that you have indeed called us here this day to be in your house, Lord, and it's a reminder and it's a a picture of the fact that you have called us out of ourselves, you have called us out of the darkness of our sin into the light of your marvelous grace. And so, God, again, we're thankful. And Lord, we're thankful that because you have called us, you have made us a child of yours. You have adopted us into your family because of Christ. And so when we come to you in prayer, you hear us. We can approach your throne boldly. We can approach your throne confidently. Again, not in our own strength or because of our resumes, but because we are welcomed as a son, as a daughter, is welcomed into the presence of their father. And so, Lord, it's in that posture we come to you this day, and we do lift up our hearts to you. Lord, we lift up those unspoken requests that are in this room this very day. As we all bear anxieties and burdens, as we all bear the weight of responsibility of living life here on earth, we lift up, Lord, those burdens to you this day. Father, we do continue to pray for our city. We pray for our county, our state, our country, Lord. We pray that you would continue to accomplish your will, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, that you would give us, Lord, the eyes of faith to to see you at work, to trust you, Lord, even when we can't trace your hand always, Lord. Give us the eyes of faith to follow after you, Lord, to be the people of salt and light that you have called us to be. Lord, we pray for your blessings on this, your church family. And God, we're mindful of the ways that there are sheep in this very pasture who are hurting this day and who need an extra measure of your healing touch and grace. So Lord, in that spirit, we do lift up before you this day by name to the throne of grace, Anna Mae Kinzer and Carolyn Colmar. Lord, we continue to pray for Susan Campbell and for Tom Doyle. God, we pray for Rhonda Copper, Lord, and we pray for Tim Weldon. God, we continue to lift up Ashley Starr's mother to you this day. God, we pray for Marlene Reese, Lord, and her son-in-law, Jim, recently testing positive for COVID. Lord, we pray for him as he's been quite sick. We ask for your healing grace and mercy. Lord, I pray for my own in-laws. I pray for my wife, April's parents, Jim and Debbie, who also have tested positive up in North Carolina and are dealing with it as well, God, and pray for your healing, mercy, and touch. God, there are many who we could have named as well. There are many on our hearts this morning. And again, Lord, we ask for you as the great physician to do the work that only you can do. And we entrust, Lord, those to your care. God, we also continue to pray for your blessings on our ministries, Lord, as we move into a new year by your grace. Would you bless us, Lord? Would you lead us? Would you again enable us to be that city on a hill that we are called to be as a church? And finally, Lord, as we now move into a time of hearing your word read and it preached, God, we ask for your blessing. And as always, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our sermon text for this morning is found on page 8 in your bulletin. You can also turn there in your own Bible if you brought one, and it's in 1 Thessalonians 5 this morning. Just a few short verses in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. 
1 Thessalonians 5, verses 15 through 18. Hear this, the word of the Lord, it says. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Did you notice that Paul, right here, right this very day, right this morning, told you the will of God for your life? He told you the will of God for your life. Are you surprised? Did you come here this morning expecting there to be such great revelation, (laughs) great life-defining news given to you? I mean, isn't that reserved, you know, the will of God and all those kinds of things, isn't that reserved for, you know, theologians to debate in the seminary classroom or isn't, you know, finding the revealed will of God reserved for, you know, late night TV preachers on TBN selling you prayer cloths and vials of holy water that for a generous donation will, you know, upon application reveal to you the will of God for your life? Isn't it found in seven-step formulas or, or, or spiritual gurus and mystics? Well, here the answer is no, right? No, it's not found in those places. It doesn't require those mechanisms. The will of God for our lives was already being discussed already being made known, already being circulated, even by the Apostle Paul, that great missionary church planter, as long ago as here in around A.D. 50s sometime, as he writes to the church in Thessalonica, the Greek city of Thessalonica. And that date alone, again, when you think about when Paul wrote this letter, somewhere in the 50s, AD, that date alone should surprise you. It should, it should jar you. It should catch your attention because it means something for us today. It means that for all the uncertainties of this unprecedented year that we call 2020, for all the ways that it's felt chaotic and, and crazy and for all the ways that it makes us feel sometimes like we're living on, you know, the razor's edge or the knife's edge of history, in the face of all those things, in the face of all the challenges that have come, God's will for your life and for mine remains the same. It remains fixed. And again, the amazing thing about these verses is Paul is writing them, when he writes the church in Thessalonica, he is writing to newly converted Christians, newly converted Christians who were mostly religious outsiders, or what we would call Gentiles in the New Testament, who had come to a a newfound faith in Christ, and they had done so through the ministry of Paul and Silas when they had gone, again, into the city of Thessalonica. If you remember, and if you look back in the book of Acts, where we actually get the background to 
these letters. What happened in Thessalonica was pretty typical for Paul and Silas. They would go into the city where God called them, where the Spirit moved them, and they would go into the synagogue, or they would go to the the city center, and they would preach the gospel. They would preach that the good news, the message that the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, who had created the world, who had chosen for himself a people who had revealed himself and his holiness through the law had done something even more amazing. He had come down in the person of Christ Jesus. And as you heard me say and pray earlier, he had come down to do for humanity what humanity could never do for itself. To live that perfect life, to die the atoning death, and to rise from the grave to show his lordship over all, to show his victory and conquering over death. And what happened, as is typical, when Paul and Silas would preach that message, people would be converted. People would be prompted by the Holy Spirit. They would give their lives over to Christ. And those people who believed that day in Thessalonica began to form what later would become known as the Thessalonian church. The church, again, to now... Paul would eventually write in these letters. But again, as you know, if you were to read the account in Acts, not everybody who heard the message believed. And so those who didn't believe the words of Paul, many of them stirred up dissension and they stirred up animosity against Paul and Silas. And in fact, in that city specifically, they stirred up such animosity and such dissension that Paul and Silas had to be snuck out of the city by night. They had to be carried away unannounced so that they could, again, avoid persecution and hardship. But it's, again, because this newly formed church began under such tumultuous situations, and again, because that church was was planted, if you will, in, in an area that was kind of hostile in many ways to the gospel message, When Paul bothers to write back to them in these letters, you would expect his words, you would expect, you know, him speaking of the will of God for them to be deeper, wouldn't you? To be, again, more more, more mystical, to, to be some profound spiritual program or some profound spiritual mystery, something so deep and amazing and and intricate that, you know, if it was in today's religious culture, it would garner a best-selling book deal, or it would, you know, it'd be a television special, and it would be a, a program and a campaign that churches would, you know, get on board with and have, you know, programs built around. You would expect that, right? Because again, consider the timing, consider the environment, consider the place that this church had been Planted. And if we're honest, if we're honest as Christians, aren't we ourselves also kind of looking for that sometimes? When it comes to the will of God for your life, when it comes to you know, the purpose statement, let's call it, for your life, often, myself included, we're looking for these big, majestic, legendary kind of callings or, or, or instructions Again, things for us to do, you know, uh, monumental works for the kingdom. But again, when you read this, it's kind of basic. It's maybe even underwhelming. Look at it again. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks 
Not just in November, <laughs> not just the last week in November, not just when you're stuffed with mashed potatoes and gravy and watching the Dallas Cowboys likely lose again on Thanksgiving, um, but always, right, give thanks, always give thanks in all circumstances. It sounds basic, it sounds ordinary, and yet, I think what we see here is this is a reminder in these words, and we're going to unpack them in a moment, but I think it's a reminder here for us of just how upside down the kingdom of God often is. That the ways of the church and the ways of the Christian life are often not the same ways that the world employs to see success or to see advancement or to see even the securing of one's purpose. But again, it's upside down. That the lens and the, and the vision of the kingdom is often upside down from the lens and the vision of the world. And these words of Paul, again, remind us that the kingdom of God not just in the world, but the kingdom of God often advances furthest even in our own lives, not through extraordinary spiritual experiences, not through extraordinary you know, spiritual pilgrimages and these highs of the spiritual life, but through the ordinary means of grace, through the ordinary faithfulness of, of struggling sinners, if you will, and not the extraordinary accomplishments of celebrity saints, let's call them. It's not often how God works and does his work. And again, we can actually see this elsewhere. If you have your Bible, in the same letter, 1 Thessalonians, if you were to go just a chapter before into uh, chapter 4, And if you look in verse 10, and again, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, you can just listen. But if you look in verse 10 of chapter 4, Paul says this, but we urge you, again, Thessalonians 4 verse 10, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Isn't that amazing? How often do you hear that talked about in churches or, or, or big you know, conferences or things like that, that this is the will of God for us, that we aspire to live quietly, that we mind our own affairs. And again, it's not, a, it's not antithetical to those who are called to maybe more visible or extravagant works for God or callings. But it is a reminder that it's not only how God works. He doesn't only work in the spotlight of, of ministry or the spotlight of you know, professional Christianity and those who we see up on stages and whatever, but he also, and perhaps more often, works through the, the non-spotlight of the faithful Christian life, day in, day out, for this is the will of God for you. Again, Paul says, and so he assures us that even in the midst of crazy circumstances and times and places like Thessalonica or even like today, God is on the move in your life. He's doing amazing things through these ordinary means of his grace and his calling for you. So let's just consider these in the time that we have left. Again, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Consider what it looks like to rejoice always. Rejoice always. That doesn't mean that we have to be plastic, smile, 
you know, perma, grin, always happy, hair's always in place, uh, Pleasantville Christians. Okay, that's not what Paul is saying here. That doesn't mean we can't have bad days or feel real sorrow. That we don't just grin and bear, you know, every circumstance of life. I hope you've heard me preach enough to know that's not what I believe. It's not what I think the scripture teaches. There are certainly a host of places in the Bible that would speak otherwise. You look in the Psalms and they're replete, again, with just every visceral emotion of the Christian life. You look in places like Ecclesiastes or Jeremiah. You look in the ministry of Jesus himself and it's an open book of, of the experiences of life. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So again, to, to rejoice always isn't to put on this plastic, artificial self. It doesn't mean that we, again, can never have bad days. But what this call to always rejoice does mean for the Christian is that no matter the circumstance, no matter what comes down the pike, no matter what comes our way, we have a hope that's grounded. We have a place and a source of joy that's grounded. It's grounded. And it's not grounded in our circumstances, but it's grounded in the calling of God to have become a child of his. To have our lives, our lives hid within Christ. I love that we sang Rock of Ages, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, that our, our life is hid in Christ. Then the Rock of Ages, that's what it means to rejoice always to, to recognize that. Here Paul elsewhere uh, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, we are afflicted in every way. So there you go. He admits the ups and downs of the Christian life. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry within our own body is the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see, to rejoice always is this posture of the silver lining of the gospel that stands behind all of our worldly circumstances. It is the power of positive thinking, but not tied to some kind of mantra or slogan, but tied actually to a historical reality we call the resurrection. <laughs> That's the power of positive thinking, right? Not to some slogan or jargon or, or, or formula where it rests on you, but it's the power of positive thinking connected to an actual historical reality, which is the greatest picture <laughs> Of, of good things happening out of bad, of light happening out of darkness, of death happening, sorry, life happening out of death, the resurrection. And so it's that silver lining, that, that background noise, if you will, of the resurrection, uh, filling out the gaps of our lives and, again, allowing us to rejoice always. It, it's actually what Paul says even here again, somewhere else in Thessalonians, if you look in your Bible one more time, in 1 Thessalonians Four, verse 13, this is a, a verse often read at funerals or memorial services, and for good reason, because it says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What is Paul saying there? He says you can grieve in the, in, the, in the places of life that are worthy of grief. You should grieve 
It's, it's Christian to grieve in the places of life that warrant grief. But you grieve with hope. You grieve with hope. You rejoice always. And so again, it doesn't have to be the end of life. It doesn't have to be a funeral or a memorial service. It can also be those places in life, the valleys of life, that feel low, that feel like death, but we still have reason and resolve to rejoice because we have hope. Because we have, again, the resurrection reality that informs us. And again, what a countercultural witness this is for the church. In a world that is shifted to and fro by circumstances, what a countercultural witness for the church to rejoice always, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. But consider what else Paul says for us. He says, pray without ceasing. So this is the will of God for us, that we rejoice always, but that we also pray without ceasing. And again, perhaps it's most helpful to tell you first what Paul does not mean here before we talk about what he does. Again, if the call to rejoice always doesn't mean it's a call to manufactured emotion, but rather a call to purposeful joy in all things, the call here to pray without ceasing doesn't mean we have to quit our jobs, <laughs> right? I mean, you hear that and you go, oh my gosh, like one more thing I have to do? Pray without ceasing? I can't do anything without ceasing. You know, like pray without, how does that work? Well, again, the, the call here to pray continually or to pray without interruption or to pray without now, stopping, again, doesn't mean we have to quit our jobs and, and join a monastery and do that. I've joked before, um, as you guys know, I'm a huge sports fan. I do not play fantasy sports, and I particularly don't play fantasy baseball anymore, though I used to, because I've actually joked with my wife, I would have to quit my job to do it well. Like, it takes so much time, because baseball's daily too, right? Daily games, sometimes doubleheaders. It takes so much time to do your rosters that the guys who I played with who would win were all retired, right? They had all this time to make trades and transactions, and that's why they were good at it. Fantasy baseball is impossible. It's just so much time. I have to quit my job. Well, again, Paul's not saying that here with prayer, to quit your job, to join a monastery. Again, why is he not saying that? Because fundamentally, what is prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is the realization that we have an open line of communication, that we have continually open access into the throne room of heaven at all times, at all times and at all places. And it's a pathway or it's an access that was opened up for us because of the work of Christ. But it's a pathway that we can pursue anytime any place, when you're driving, you know, it's a thought you give to the Lord. When you're, again, you're doing dishes in the home, changing diapers in the home, working in whatever career or calling the Lord has given you, it's, a, it's just a focus of your attention to the one who is Lord over all. It's a focusing of your attention and a, and a, and a taking advantage of the access, again, that Christ has given to us. Wherever you, wherever you find yourself, wherever God has placed you, Again, what is that great Abraham Kuyper quote we've talked about here before? He says, there's not a single square inch of the universe 
where the Lord Jesus doesn't look down and declare, mine, it's all his, it all belongs to him. This is my father's world, right? And so again, wherever we find ourselves, our prayer doesn't have to be elaborate, doesn't have to, you know, again, be inside a monastery and be this dedicated and devoted time, although that's also helpful. It can be a thought to the one who has paved access into the throne room of grace any time in any place. Hebrews 10 puts it this way, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We have confidence to enter the holy place at any time with the briefest of prayer, with the, the briefest of thoughts. Think even in the own ministry of Jesus, how when he gave us the Lord's Prayer, that in itself was sort of a deconstruction, if you will, of the big and elaborate pharisaical prayers that would require, so to speak, you quitting your job <laughs> and you putting on a phylactery and a robe and, 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 and you know, whitening your face so that it, you, know, you looked like you were dour and meditative, and Christ says, no, no. God knows what you need before you even ask. So come to him honestly. Come to him openly, briefly even. Come to him candidly. Pray without ceasing. And the amazing thing, too, about prayer is that even when we don't know what to say, <laughs> even when we're at a loss for words and we're a, a stammering, yammering, you know, fool in the presence of God. The text tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. I can remember, uh, I know all my illustrations involve sports. I do apologize. Uh, but I was at a Marlins game uh, right after they won the World Series in 2003. 2003? I think it was 2003. Um, and I happened to actually sit in the same section with the owner, which was like, once in a, I only did it once. Don't get the wrong impression, okay? Did it one time. But the owner was close enough, Jeff Loria back then, where I went up to him like an idiot, okay? And his bodyguard wasn't very pleased. But I went up to him, and I tried to communicate to him, like, just how excited I was about the Marlins winning the World Series. And I even, like, told him how I got choked up, and it was, like, super embarrassing. And my wife is, like, probably super embarrassed now. But I went up to him, and he looked at me like I was a yammering idiot. I was just a complete fool I didn't even know what to say. I was trying to communicate how much I loved the Marlins and what it meant to me. They won the World Series, and he looked at me like I had two heads, okay? And his bodyguard just discreetly brushed me out of the way, all right? Stupid example, but think about how when we come to the presence of God, we can feel like a fool. We don't know what to say. We're not eloquent enough for whatever it might be, and yet, what does the Bible tell us? Well, Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit himself helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, prayer, even from weakness, even from a lack of eloquence, is a continual 
posture, where we look again outside of ourselves, we look away from our own strength to the strength of another, namely Christ. And again, what a countercultural witness, what a countercultural calling that is for the church. In a world that prizes those who are self-made, in a world that prizes those who can tout their own strength and their own fortitude and resolve, we as the church, we as the people of God, look outside of ourselves. We look away from our own strength, which is lacking, which is faltering, which is fickle. And we look to the strength of another, namely that of God. And we cry out to him in prayer again, wherever he finds us, wherever we find ourselves, we pray without ceasing. And finally, finally, in this season particularly, what does Paul tell us to do? What is the will of God for our lives? He says to give thanks in all circumstances. To give thanks in all circumstances. Can you imagine a posture more Again, countercultural, than thankfulness in 2020. What a year. What a year. A pandemic year, an election year, a year where the lid seems like it's just about to maybe blow off that boiling pot that is just the world in which we live. Can you imagine being thankful? Being thankful in this circumstance, in every circumstance. Again, I'm not advocating for emotionless stoicism. I'm not advocating for us to just brush over the rough patches of life, the rough patches of, of 2020. Again, Christians of all people should acknowledge the, the rough patches of life. We have a biblical worldview, a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of sin and brokenness and all of its effects on the world. But what I am advocating for, <laughs> and what I think Paul is here, is what if you as a Christian, what if I as a, a child of God, in every situation that we encounter, even that of a pandemic, a year like no other, what if instead of complaint and doubt or cynicism and despair, what if instead of criticism or disbelief, we were thankful? We were grateful to God for his unseen blessings that still remain. We were thankful to God, again, in all ways and in all times. I, I know it sounds silly, but I, I try to work on this even in my own life, even with my own kids. I mean, we, you know, we lose a game in Little League, and it can ruin the day, but what if we said, you know what, win or lose, we got to be outside and play a game. We got to have bodies that work, throw a baseball, whatever it is, right? What if in traffic, you're sitting in a traffic jam and you're cursing under your breath, and I know you are, so don't, don't act like you're not, okay? I know you are. You're cursing under your breath, but what if you said, you know what, I get to sit in a car that has AC, you know? get to sit in a car that has AC. And yeah, traffic's no fun, but man, I'm going to give thanks for the simple material blessings the Lord has put 
in my life, whatever it is. I talked last week and we talked about projects here at the church. You know, we have a roof here that leaks in the sanctuary, which does mean, like I said, you can get unintentionally baptized if you sit over here uh, during the rainy season. So just so you know, uh, we have a leak in the roof and then, you know, we've got to fix that. Don't get me wrong. We do need to fix it. And we will, and we'll work on those kinds of things. But what if we said, wow, we have a sanctuary to even have a leaky roof on. A lot of churches don't have sanctuaries. A lot of churches don't have buildings or whatever, but we have a sanctuary that gets to leak. (laughs) You see the difference? You see the difference in our lives that makes? When we look at what God has given, and again, not in motivational speaking type ways, not because we deal in cliches, but because, why? Because we live this side of the resurrection. Because we live this side of the empty tomb. Because we know, again, as we just heard in Romans a minute ago, that God is working all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. And so we can still have hardships and difficulties, but we can always find grounds and reasons to give thanks to God. That in the gospel, as Tolkien says, God really is making every sad thing come untrue. And what a hope that is for us. What a perpetual reason to give thanks to God, as Paul says, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. And remember when Paul was writing, remember who he was writing to, the uncertainty and the instability of life then far exceeded the instability and uncertainty of life even in our day. And yet Paul says, this is God's will for you. This is how you become a witness to a watching world. This is how you can be salt and light. This is how you can be good news people in a perpetually bad news world. So again, my challenge to you, my challenge to myself, my challenge to us as a church is as we enter this week and as we do hopefully prompt our hearts for thankfulness and for thanksgiving, that we would continue that posture in all circumstances, in all seasons, that in the gospel and in Christ, We have a reason to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us, the God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your provision to us. Lord, we thank you that your word does convict us and it reminds us of all the ways in which you have been so good to us. All the ways that you continue to to bless us and to sustain us and to guide us. Again, we recognize it doesn't mean exemption from the valleys of life, the difficulties of life, but it does mean that we have one who is with us in those valleys. We have Emmanuel, God with us. And we ultimately have the hope of knowing that you are with us in a way that overcomes the world ultimately and that grounds our identity ultimately in the city which is to come, the new heavens, the new earth. So Lord, in this earthly pilgrimage, would you continue to remind us and to encourage us and to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.